Many moons ago, when the world was young and heroes walked the earth, there was born the History Podcast. And in this world, there was the Beeb. There was Lars Brownworth and a bloke called Mike Duncan, and we heard Mike and knew he was good. And so was spawned a new generation, wherein I was inspired by Robin Pearson, who picked up the mantle of the Roman Empire in Byzantium. Robin, I'm glad to say, is still going strong, is still producing magnificent history and entertainment, and here is a message from him. Hello everyone, this is Robin Pearson from the History of Byzantium podcast. It seems like you enjoy your history recounted to you by an erudite, funny Englishman. Well, I am also an Englishman. And if you like a bit of Roman history, then come join me for a thousand-year epic of incredible highs and devastating lows. Check out The History of Byzantium wherever you get your podcasts, or go to thehistoryofbyzantium.com. For now, back to David. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Hello everyone, and welcome to the History of England, episode 120, who was then the gentleman. Now then, last week Wat Tyler, Jack Straw, John Ball and their furious rebels had streamed away from Blackheath towards London Bridge in the gate. Somehow they had to get through that gate, they had to get over that drawbridge. But before we go on, I think it would be good to back up just a bit and talk about the state of London at this time, both physically and politically. This could well be annoying many people. We have a love-hate relationship here in the good old U of K about London. Uh, Sometimes a hate-hate relationship. And I would love to be doing a history of York and Norwich and Brizzle and loads of other places. But hate it or loathe it, London was, and still is, a beast, and the epicentre of political power. And it is all rather fascinating, or I find it so but sorry, okay? Physically first, then. I'm going to refer to a map I have posted on the interweb, which gives you an idea of the main topology. With its population of around 40,000, London remained far and away the largest town in England and the only city of a significant size in European terms. But it had fallen massively since its height of 100,000 before the plague. And even to keep the 40,000 population up, it needed constant immigration, with a catchment area of at least 120 miles. But think about that, 40,000 people. I mean, in modern terms, it's titchy-tiny, the size of a small market town. The majority of the population is within the square mile of the city, so put away your thoughts of modern London, if you know it in any way. Rightly or wrongly, I think of the middle of London as stretching from sort of Westminster all the way to the end of the city. 
but in the Middle Ages, London was basically the city and nothing else. Westminster was a separate town. So if you go to the map, you'll see the city wall stretching round the city, and the bridge that is at the heart of it. In the southern eastern corner is the Tower of London, in the southwestern corner is the other royal castle, Baynard Castle. And inside the walls, the city is divided into regions dominated by different crafts and trades and the various churches and parishes. The areas of London that I tend to think of as very much part of central London are in the main either fields or small satellite villages. There are three main satellite towns. The first is Southwark, as we've discussed before, at the southern end of the bridge. It's been described as London's scrap heap. We've talked about the stews, the brothels, the prison of the Marshalsea. There were also the nastier industries like dyeing, tanning, brewing, all the things that smell a lot and often involve we. So there's that. And then there's Westminster, which of course often gets mentioned. Westminster had grown up around the Abbey and Palace, and by this time was definitively the centre of government. Comfortable inns grew up for the steady stream of business visitors and pilgrims from all over England, with fashionable shops to lighten their purses while they were there. The prices were notoriously outrageous, so nothing ever changes there then, from the posh shops to even the street vendors. Westminster was still, in principle, a manorial ville, rather than part of London's self-regulating community. But in fact, its twelve chief pledges had become in practice a governing council. And finally, we have the East End, which really we've not covered before. But outside of London's eastern walls, beyond Aldgate and the Tower, the East End had already become the industrial zone it would be until the 20th century, when the yuppies moved in, with their red braces and all. Along the riverfront was St Catherine's Dockyard for the repair of ships, and further along the lime works at Limehouse. Outside Aldgate was an area of metalworking and a bell foundry. At Whitechapel there were brickworks. At Stratford, grain brought down the River Lee from Hertfordshire was unloaded, and in the meadows and marshes cattle were fattened for slaughter. The area was part of the Bishop of London's Manor of Stepney, but everything it did was linked to the endless greedy demands of the city. Now there are linking bits, of course, so between the city wall and Hoburn were the Inns of Court, serving the legal and clerical profession. By the river along the Strand, linking Westminster to the city, were the Bishop's Inns, grand townhouses for the Bishops of Carlisle and Lincoln and Exeter and so on. And, of course, John of Gaunt's Great Savoy Palace. OK, so now there's the political fabric of the city. It's blessed complicated, but structurally, at the top is the mayor, not just a pretty face as they are now, and then below that, the Council of 24 Aldermen, each representing their ward. Peacekeeping came from the two sheriffs and the mayor's court. Below the Council of Aldermen was the Common Council, set up in 1376 and made of 96 citizens, elected by the wards. Mostly, the Common Council was not where true power lay, but it regulated many aspects of daily life for Londoners, and therefore wasn't just a cipher. So politically, broadly, there are a few things going on. Firstly, there's the good old struggle for power amongst the city's powerful guilds and oligarchy. Most towns in England, in fact, had plenty going on by way of competition for power among their leading citizens. In London, everything was simply writ large. 
amongst the guilds, there was an essential fault line between the merchants and victualling guilds on the one hand, so grocers, vintners, fishmongers, that sort of thing, and the craft or artisan guilds on the other, haberdashers, armourers, cutlers and all that. By and large, the merchants were considerably wealthier, and hostility between the two groups gave lots of potential for political chicanery and instability. Members of the guilds were all citizens of London, and probably accounted for something like a quarter of the adult male population. And within these guilds, of course, there was a hierarchy. At the top of society were the potentiores, the really big names. Then below them were the substantial middling men, the mediocres, and then the mass of smaller masters and artisans, the inferiores. In medieval England, you knew where you stood. Outside of the citizens, then, you had the foreign labourers, the foreign secchi, the wage labourers and the petty traders, and then also the very poor. So there's all that struggle going on. But secondly, there was the constant struggle by London to have its freedoms and powers recognised and reconfirmed by the Crown. And on the other hand, there was the Crown, worrying about all the freedoms and independence that London had. So London was constantly suspicious of any move by the Crown to mess around with its freedoms and always likely to see any move as an attempt to remove or restrict those freedoms. And thirdly then, we've referred to poor old John of Gaunt's unpopularity in London, poor Lamb. Well, much of this was because he simply couldn't resist meddling in London's politics. He had the massive Savoy Palace on the Strand, as we've said, and his messing about had made it something of a focus for discontent. So at many points, all these things come together. London's politics gets intertwined in national politics. An example is 1376 and the Good Parliament, where Gaunt supported a man called John of Northampton to gain commercial privileges for London. And then in 1377, we'd had the affair of John Wycliffe and Bishop Courtney. As a result of that, a mob had charged down to the Savoy Palace, and Gaunt had skinned his shin in his haste to escape down the river. In 1378, Gaunt was politicking against one of its leading citizens, William Woolworth a wealthy member of the Fishmongers Guild, who'd also opposed Gaunt's protégé, John of Northampton. And then in 1379, a rumour started that Gaunt was trying to stitch up a deal with the Genoese to replace London as the centre of English trade by establishing Southampton as a Genoese staple. As a result, two hard men from the guilds visited the Genoese ambassador, and they stabbed him to death on the doorstep of his lodging. Gaunt's response was to pursue the killers, and one of them was executed in 1380. All of this meant there was bad blood between Gaunt and the Londoners. I should get back to the Peasants' Revolt, of course, from what has become quite a major digression. But I can't resist a bit more digressing, just to finish off the story, so bear with me. In 1381, William Woolworth and another rich merchant called Nicholas Brembera were back on the ascendant over John of Northampton, despite Gaunt's meddling in 1379. And so Woolworth was the mayor who had to deal with the revolt. But straight afterwards, in 1382, John of Northampton was back. And he's an interesting bloke. He was quite clearly a volatile and in some ways radical operator, given that in the 1350s and 60s he was forced to give sureties that he would refrain from joining assemblies or confederacies. He quietened down a bit for a while as you do, kept his nose clean, 
and ended up as a sheriff and MP. But straight after the revolt, he became mayor for two successive terms. Maybe inspired by the events of the summer, he tried to bring in a radical agenda, for the first time seeming to want to access the power of the inferiores, the craftsmen and the artisans, and limiting the power of the aldermen. It was typical that at the same time he mixed it all up with frankly a bit of power-grabbing against the fishmongers' guild. The reaction from his opponents, such as Nicholas Brembury, was again typical of the turbulent London politics. Brembury packed the Guildhall mayoral election of 1383 to ensure that Northampton lost power, and in the following year Northampton was on trial for sedition, from which he only escaped through royal pardon. Anyway, into this volatile political ferment came the Peasants' Revolt. It was pretty clear that the London Commons were on the side of the Kent and Essex Commons. Intensely suspicious of the agents of the Crown, spurred by their hatred of Gaunt, and equally suspicious of the Potentiores, the great men of the establishment such as Mayor Walworth and Nicholas Brembra. Fueled by disappointment and fury, Tyler's army swept towards London Bridge swollen by the people of Southwark as they went. On their way, they took time to fire one of Woolworth's properties, evicting the Flemish prostitutes as it burned. They flooded over the first third of the bridge to the drawbridge and gate. Across the drawbridge and gate, they could see the Mayor Woolworth with the militia holding the bridge against them. Now, Mayor Woolworth was very tough as old boot. He came from Darlington. I'm not suggesting that made him particularly tough, and although his family hadn't bequeathed him a fortune, they had given him an education. He'd come to London to make his fortune as a servant of a previous merchant magnate and mayor of London, and he'd used his upbringing in trade and his powerful connection to work his way up and do just that, make his own fortune through trade in fish and corn. He knew how to influence a network, keeping in with important courtiers, making sure he had influence and a voice at court. And it all worked, leading to his election as mayor. He was known as a tough man, but he was known as fair as well. He had staunchly defended and refused to abandon his close friend William Wickham against the most powerful man in the realm, John of Gaunt. He was regularly chosen to lead judicial inquiries because people trusted his judgment and fairness. And he was to prove relentlessly resolute in the crisis that followed. So you can be sure that as he saw the mob stream towards the drawbridge, if there had been any way of keeping them out, Woolworth was the man to do it. Unfortunately, there were just as many of the commons inside the wall as out, men who had been in communication with the rebels all along. And as Woolworth looked into the eyes of his militia, he knew there was only one answer here, and the gates were opened, the drawbridge lowered. Meanwhile, had he but known it, the commons of Essex had done the very same thing at Aldgate and were also streaming into the city. What happened on that day of the 13th of June was typical of the revolt so far. Looting and making money was strictly banned by the rebel leaders. But everything else, well, that was fair game. Settling old scores and dealing with what the rebels saw as the architects of their oppression destroying as many symbols of that oppression as possible and releasing its victims. On the way, a grain of xenophobia to leaven the bread of revolt. So one group went straight to Fleet Prison and flung open the doors, 
Another group targeted Treasurer Hales, prior of the Knights Hospitaller. The Temple Church was ransacked as the tomb of William the Marshal looked on with disapproval. But not just because it was associated with Hales and the Hospitallers. It contained reams of legal records, all burnt in the name of freedom from the justice system that worked so hard against the rebels. North at Clerkenwell, the priory of St John itself was soon in flames as the frustrated rebels failed to find Hales himself, because he was safely tucked up in the tower. The biggest group of all charged off down the Strand, for the main part ignoring the bishop's inns and heading straight for the magnificent home of the biggest bogeyman of them all, John of Gaunt. The palace was ransacked, with an air of fun and holiday just edged with violence. They piled all Gaunt's goodies and riches in a big pile and set them alight. They found one of his jerkins and paraded it round on a pole, jabbing lances into it as they went. One group settled down in the cellar and drank or emptied his wine on the ground and when one man tried to steal a silver cup, they ruthlessly chucked him into the flames. All that looting does so give a revolt a bad name. And then, a bit like someone putting beer in the punch late in the evening and ruining the fun, someone chucked a barrel of gunpowder into the flames and the whole place went up, and they beat a hasty retreat. As they left, the folk drinking gaunt wine in the cellar suddenly found themselves alone and unable to get out because of the debris blocking the door. For seven days they banged and hollered, with no one to hear them, until they could cry out no longer, because they were all dead. The settling of old scores went deep in London, and lawyers were one of those groups in the firing line. So it turned out to be a bad day at the office for a lawyer called Roger Leggett, who had made himself super unpopular as a corrupt and ruthless man. So when the rebels broke in, he made a run for sanctuary. Sadly for Leggett, the rebels decided not to obey the rules, and they dragged him out. They took him to Cheapside. Cheapside is a reasonably common English place name, which means marketplace, which is what it was in London. And there, Leggett was one of the 18 people that day to be executed by the rebels by having their heads cut off. There would be more to come. By the evening of the 13th, a large part of the mob was gathered under the walls of the tower, and the din of their shouting and cheering and all the noise of an excited crowd reached up to Richard and his council. Negotiations started that began to give Richard a better idea of what he was really dealing with. These were peasants. Surely they'd just do what their king told them. So a message was read out as the light faded, essentially saying that Richard magnanimously would forgive all the damage the rebels had done so far, they should all disperse, and not to worry about their demands, he'd sort it out. A cry of derision greeted the announcement. They would not leave until they had the written assurances they wanted. And as Richard stood at the top of the tower in the evening light, he could see London burning around him, and if he hadn't realised it before now, he now knew this was not going to be a doddle. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. That night inside the tower, the king and his council met. There were two schools of thought. The hardliners were Mayor Woolworth and Nicholas Prember. They were all for tackling these louts head-on. They had 1,200 men in the tower, however demoralised they might be. Around the city there were others, such as Robert Knowles, the famous warrior of the war with France. He alone had 120 men ready for battle. Let's risk it all on one throw of the dice. The rebels are drunk and will die like flies, they said. The other school of thought was led by the Earl of Salisbury, Archbishop Sudbury and Treasurer Hales. These words by Salisbury won the argument. Sire, if we can appease them by fair words, that would be the better course. Promise them everything they are asking. If we begin something that we are unable to finish, there will be no stopping things before we and our heirs are destroyed and all England is laid in ruins. As a result, in the morning the word was spread that the king himself would meet everyone at Mile End, outside the city, through the Old Gate. Out from the tower went Richard, with his entourage, including the likes of his half-brothers, the Hollands, his very best friend in all the world, Robert de Vere, and the London oligarchs, William Walworth and Nicholas Brember. Even Richard's mother was there, the now enormously fat Joan, fair maid of Kent. It was a bun fight. The rebels had had their taste of freedom and they were loving it, rowdy and intimidating, swarming around the royal party so that Richard had to push his way through the crowd. Some of them shouted out aggressively that they would demand what they wanted because they had the power. Joan panicked and returned to the tower, but through it all, Richard stayed calm. When they got to Mile End, Richard's job was basically to give them exactly what they wanted. So he found himself negotiating with the leaders of the village companies, though strangely there was no sign of John Ball or Watt Tyler. The rebels told him what they wanted, essentially a new charter that made them and their heirs all free forever, and at the same time that restricted rent to four pence per acre. Richard said, Is that all? Well, how fine! Yes, sure, no problem. I shall prepare the writs immediately. Now, if the rebels had been looking very closely, they might have wondered why Richard's nose appeared to be growing a little longer. But in all the excitement and euphoria, they just cheered and celebrated. 
carried away by it all, Richard then boobed. Gentle listener, he boobed badly. He told them that he would be delighted for them to go across the land and root out any traitors they found in his name. Not even realising that he had boobed and why, Richard set off from Myland under the very strong impression that everything was absolutely okay. The rebels would be leaving to go home and that he'd save the day. Hurrah! And off he went to the other royal castle in London on the west side of the city, Baynard Castle. When he got there, he got his chancery to prepare the writs he'd promised, making all of the rebels free. Phew! Sorted that one then. Next! So why had Richard boobed? Well, the news that the king had authorised his loyal and trusted friends, the True Commons, to root out traitors, spread like wildfire. And it spread straight back to the tower, which is where Tyler and Ball were waiting. The news gave them exactly what they wanted, and at the same time completely demoralised the tower guards. Basically, the king had given the rebels a blank cheque, so why should the guards try to stop them? So the gates of the tower opened and the rebels swarmed in. The poor old guards were mocked and manhandled. Legal documents were burned. Rooms were ransacked by amazed peasants, marvelling at the richness and luxury around them. They found poor old Joan, Richard's mother, and forced her to give them a kiss before they'd release her. All well and good, but they also had a serious purpose. They were after those traitors. John Ball was on the lookout for Archbishop Sudbury, the man who had imprisoned him three times and censored him for heresy. It was payback time. And of course they needed to find Hales as well. The tower was searched high and low without any sign until a group burst into the chapel and there they were, a terrified Hales and Sudbury. With cries of triumph, the two of them were bundled out onto Tower Hill. Sudbury argued furiously that he was no traitor and that he'd excommunicate the lot of them if they dared to touch him. The rebels just laughed and forced his head onto the block and an enthusiastic but rather inexperienced peasant called John Starling stepped forward to sever the head of an archbishop from the body of an archbishop. He'd never done it before, but after all, how hard could it be? Turns out severing a body from a head is a tough old business, so it was a bloodbath. Starling's first blow only caused a gash on the neck. The archbishop raised his hand to the cut, whereupon the second blow took off the tips of his fingers. It took eight blows until the job was done, and the separation was finally achieved. History does not record if the enthusiastic peasant managed Robert Hales any better, but whatever, Hales and others followed, and four heads were stuck triumphantly on poles. Well, now the floodgates were open, restraint was out of fashion, and in the name of finding traitors all over the city, the mob became a lynch mob. Something like 150 foreigners were dragged out of their houses and killed just because they were foreigners. Others died because they had indeed been corrupt, such as Richard Lyons, a massively rich merchant who was pulled from his house, dragged through the streets to Cheapside and executed, along with a growing number of victims. One big group marched all the way down to Westminster Abbey, past the Castle Baynard, proudly holding the poles with the head of Sudbury and Hales ahead of them. When they got to the Abbey, they found a chap there called Richard Imworth, 
keeper of the King's Bench Prison in Southwark, who had run there for sanctuary. And guess what? He was pulled from the altar and killed as well. As an interesting little footnote to all of this, one of the people in the tower was Henry Bolingbroke, Earl of Derby and son of John of Gaunt. A son of the hated Gaunt, it's a fair bet that he was toast. And indeed, there was a group that went looking for the 14-year-old lad, and they found him. But at this point, one of the guards, a man called John Furore, stepped in and managed to persuade the rebels to let him go, and Bolingbroke escaped. He would remember this many years later, when Furore's life was in his hands. So at some point, even 14-year-old Richard began to realise that the softly-softly approach had not worked and that Salisbury's advice wasn't worth the rough end of a pineapple. So Walworth, Brember and Richard had a better look at Plan B, the butcher, more manly, spit-in-your-eye approach. And they hatched a plan. The rebels would be invited to Smithfield for another meeting. Smithfield was just outside the walls northwest of the city. Now it was an open area, but it was surrounded by various buildings, and therefore it had pinch points where a smaller force could fight on the same terms as the larger one. Here was where the king's limited force of men could take on much larger numbers of rebels and maybe just win. Either way, Richard didn't have much to lose. The city was in Watt Tyler's hands anyway. While Richard prepared himself by praying at Westminster Abbey, Walworth prepared for war. He ordered his aldermen to start recruiting in their wards, he visited Knowles and told him to have his men ready. He got himself dressed with full body armour under his clothes, and then as evening approached, it was time. By the time Walworth, Richard and his retinue of 200 men arrived at Smithfield, Tyler, Ball and the rebels were waiting. Smithfield was used for a number of different events, normally used by butchers. It had been the scene of Wallace's evisceration and was regularly used for jousts. There was a large watering place for horses called the Horse Pool where the rebels were waiting, while across Smithfield was the royal retinue. What followed was a piece of theatre that is a core part of the shared history of England. My memory of being taught the Peasants' Revolt was that it was all about the brave and calm 14-year-old Richard, and that's certainly the Ladybird approach. Now I go through this again, I think that's OK, that's partly true actually, but the real story is about the Plantagenets and their capacity for viciousness. So Walworth rode towards the rebels and called for Tyler to come forward and meet the king. Tyler, almost faint with delight as his rise to power, rode forward on a small horse. He was feeling in total control. Over the last couple of weeks, they had given every agent of the crown a good kicking. He was self-confident, he was arrogant. Tyler was wearing a hood and failed to doff it in the presence of the king. Behind Richard, his retinue bristled at the insult. Richard, however, remained calm when Tyler lurched forward and shook God's anointed by the hand in a hail-fellow-well-met kind of way that profoundly shocked the royal retinue again. A bit like going to a garden party at Buckingham Palace, slapping the queen on the back, calling her Queenie and then giving her a good goosing when she turned round to move on to the next guest. 
Tyler's demands were calculated to be refused, so that he could keep the momentum of the revolt going, and so he gave an absurd diatribe about restoring the laws of Winchester and getting rid of all lordship and all church hierarchy. I mean, don't get me wrong, good idea and all, but a few hundred years too early. But to his astonishment, Richard's reply was, OK then, along with a sharp demand for Tyler and his rebels to go home. So Tyler was a bit nonplussed, didn't quite know what to say. This was not what he'd expected. So he played for time. He called for a jug of water and then a jug of ale, which he crudely spat out in front of the king. But it didn't help. He still didn't know what to do. And so he turned and got back on his horse. Now the thing is, you just don't do that sort of thing. If you want to leave the presence of the king, you ask very, very nicely. And at all times, you carefully observe your P's and Q's. Richard's retinue could bear this all no longer. A squire shouted at Tyler that he was nothing more than a common thief. Tyler, drunk with power, drew his dagger and waved it threateningly at the squire and started ranting that he'd had his head. Walworth saw his moment. He rode forward and told Tyler he was going to arrest him for his behaviour and Tyler struck out with a dagger, slicing through the mayor's clothing and into his armour. As soon as he heard the sound of metal on metal, Tyler was dead meat. Walworth struck with his own dagger, once in the neck, once in the head. Tyler, mortally wounded, spurred his horse back towards the ranks of his men. Walworth now was already off, charging away from the scene into the city, desperate to get to the fighting men that he had prepared, and give them the signal to attack. Then Tyler fell from his horse, unable to go further and mortally wounded. Horrified, the rebels, still quite a long way away, could not know exactly what had happened, but they saw Tyler fall and could see that it wasn't going to plan. And so they drew their bows and prepared to fight. At which point, something in Richard made him step forward and take the initiative. According to Foissard, he said, Sirs, what more do you want? You have no other captain but me. I am your king. Behave peaceably. So saying, Richard told them they should go to the open fields further out at Clerkenwell, and he started to lead them off. And amazingly, the rebels did exactly what they were told. Like lambs, they meekly fell in behind their king and followed. After all, they'd always expected their king to be their friend. They trusted him. He was telling them that he would look after them and they believed him. Plus, of course, they'd lost their leader and had no idea what else to do. The real shame is that history doesn't record what Jack Straw and John Ball were doing. I imagine them begging and imploring their men not to be such doormats, but who knows. As they marched, Woolworth arrived back in Smithfield with the force he'd gathered from the aldermen, Knowles and Brember. They found Smithfields almost deserted, but did manage to learn that the wounded Tyler had been taken to St Bartholomew's Hospital, right next door. So Woolworth went to visit, and didn't bother to get himself any grapes or any get-well cards on the way. Instead, he dragged Tyler out of the hospital and back into Smithfields and finished the job he'd started earlier, taking his head off and sticking it in time-honoured fashion now on the end of a pole. It was a time of plenty for the pole manufacturing industry, 
pole manufacturers still talk about it today with teary-eyed, hushed tones of awe. At Clerkenwell, the rebels were still basking in a warm, fuzzy kind of feeling that their king was looking after them. Then that feeling disappeared. Walworth and Brember tipped up with their pole, with Tyler's head and a bunch of armed fighting men. And Richard greeted them like long-lost friends. And then the true commons knew where they stood. And they knew that where they stood was brown. They were officially in the poop. So they cried out to the king to show them mercy. Now Richard wasn't a complete wally, and he knew things could still turn ugly. So he told them everything would be fine, they still had their writs, they could hop off home. And the rebels needed no further bidding. Their day in the sun was over, it had been a hoot, but all good things must come to an end. And so they filed away. Richard was as happy as a sandboy, whatever a sandboy is. It was over. He was back in control, and his head was still attached to his spine rather than the top of a pole. He called Walworth and Bremba over and, in gratitude, knighted them on the spot. Now, you will be horrified to hear that while London is now free of the rebels, England is not. And I have managed my writing time so poorly that we are going to have to finish off the revolt next time. I say next time because, of course, next week is an off week, so in two weeks' time we'll have the next episode. We'll also take the opportunity to catch up about the state of religion, so there will be both hum and indeed ding. As ever, thanks to everyone for listening, for all your comments on the History of England website, on iTunes and the Facebook site. Grateful thanks to donators Mary, Jason, Kathy, Oak and Matthew. Good luck everyone, and have a great couple of weeks.